0: This is really important because it's one of the things that I've learned through the huge ups and downs. Margin is a choice. We sometimes make a lot more margin, but what we do is we reinvest it to get back to our 14%, whether that's, you know, we can afford to give people raises or invest in some R&D to improve ourselves. But if I'm rapaciously overdrawing on the business, I'm probably imperiling it at some point.
1: After attending a two-week Harvard course, Dave Duarte returned to his business energized and focused. Unfortunately, this focus directly led to his first round of retrenchments in some extremely difficult times as his sales efforts failed to convert into paying customers. Dave Duarte is the founder of Tree Shake, a social media agency focused on campaigns for change. His team works with purpose-driven leaders to build communities and solve the big issues of our day, from poverty, climate change, public health, animal welfare, relevant education, and so much more. In this insightful conversation, Dave talks about living in a narrative economy, choosing the right profit margins for your business, how going all in on his business actually nearly ended it, and the different kinds of growth you can expect and accept in your business. My name is Nick Harold and I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. So remember, it's not over until it's over. Okay, welcome back to another episode of It's Not Over. I am with Dave Duarte, who I have known for many, many years. I think coming on t- 20 years, maybe even more 20 something years. Dave, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks, Nick. I'm great, man. Somewhere along the way, we both lost our hair. <laughs> That's so true. We're sporting the same fantastic hairstyle. Luckily, I uh, have a graying beard that helps me feel like I've got hair on my head. Dave, so thank you for joining me. And I'm very interested in your story. So why don't you kick us off by telling me a little bit about who you are and a little bit about what you do. And then we'll get into your near-death business experience.
0: Yeah, thanks, man. Nick, I'm an obsessive, I think, like you. My first obsession professionally was eventing then it was social media and digital marketing and more recently it's become campaigning like campaigning to make a big difference in the world when people ask me what i do i say that i'm a entrepreneur and teacher it used to be educator entrepreneur actually now it's entrepreneur and facilitator i love facilitating connections between people i love facilitating learning and whatever it is that I'm currently obsessed about, that's usually what I'm facilitating for people. My primary gig right now is a business called Tree Shake, and it's all around campaigns for change. I'm using everything that I've learned uh, over my 20 year or so, whatever career, about bringing people together and using the tools that I've learned of, of digital marketing, social media, hyper persuasion to make a difference on the big issues that we face in the world today, whether it's climate job creation, water and resource management, all of the rest of
1: it. Amazing. So tell me about the business that we're going to be talking about today.
0: Well, it's TreeShake. So Nick, I mean, okay. I've, been, I've been an entrepreneur for years and there are so many near-death experiences that I could talk about, but the most recent one has been a sustained learning. Let me put it that way. Let's okay. talk
1: about how does TreeShake make money?
0: So we work as a consultancy slash agency, and we're very discerning about the clients that we take on. So uh, we take on cause-related campaigns, issues, or organizations as clients. And it's a mutual onboarding process. So I'm I speak to clients about their values, what they're aiming to achieve, and it's cross sectoral. We've we've got businesses, we've got the governmental units, individual activists, we even have non registered organizations of communities that come to us. And what we do is that we help them build community at the center of what they do, and whether that's for fundraising, to make an impact on policy, to build a sustained community around an issue—that's what we do, and it's a fee-based business. So I've got a particular project management model that I bring into them, and what we're solving for Nick is really this idea that uh, when you do, when you want to make a difference, effectively, what you're looking for is the people through which to make that difference, whether it's decision makers, investors, crowd funders, or whatever else, and we reach those people at scale through digital marketing but also through what we would know from account-based marketing and b2b development identifying the individuals nurturing the relationships onboarding them and bringing them close to you and what we've worked out is that massive change is often achieved through a few very very influential individuals and you have concentric circles of influence and so that's what we solve for and it's a solid little business
1: I'm gonna take a stab here that your revenue model is the traditional agency one where you have monthly retainers and or project-based fees and you take a cut on the ad spend or the campaign spend for the project. All of the above. Okay, amazing. So, relatively traditional agency but with a spin on trying to change the world and the big issues like climate or whatever. I mean, you've done a lot of work with Lewis Pugh. Yeah. He he was actually
0: yep. I actually started volunteering with him and he taught oh. me the advocacy and impact model. Yeah. And and one thing Amazing. I mean that I suppose is different is because of the kind of work that we're doing, we necessarily have to be way more efficient than the average agency. I mean, we're not talking about and and by choice, we're not talking about corporates with big budgets. Mm. So we need to deliver 10x the impact with one tenth of the inputs. And so we use technology, AI, machine learning, process. I have I, my, my team are like a SWAT team. They are constantly in training so that they are super fit. We're not mucking around with bringing 10 people into meetings. We're not mucking around. Like all of the things that would typically waste time in consultancies, we are going direct to impact. So everything is simplified so that we can get those big results with fewer
1: inputs using the technologies of the day. I suppose you also have to have an increased level of transparency and accountability considering you're using yeah. these budgets to do relatively charitable work, actually.
0: So reporting is everything. I mean, we've, we measure ourselves on impact and change. And that's, I, I say, I, I call my me and my team story makers because we set out on these quests to make a difference. And at the end of the day, what we measure ourselves on is did we achieve the results or not? And what did we learn? And that for me is a little package and a little story as a result of it and and one last thing you said that it's charitable i i decided not to register tree shake as a nonprofit. profit i do chair a non-profit and i've been very involved in that world i am attempting to do what i believe business can and should do which is be a force for good in the world and do so amazing profitably.
1: I I fully back that. For many years, I've held a belief that charity in a lot of instances does more harm than good. We should be helping people create their own income to learn their own skills rather than just give them stuff. Mm. But that's a whole nother podcast. Okay, so I've known TreeShake in many different forms and formats. So when did you found this business? And where are you now with it in terms of staff and any kind of numbers? You can give us some context on the company. Yeah,
0: I founded the company in 2014, and it went through a few iterations. We, the first year was very rocky. I stabilized it. 2017 was like the the first major near death experience, and where we are today, we've got a 21 full time staff, a bunch of freelancers. Um, the scale is, it's ridiculously enormous because of the kind of issues that we work on if it was a commercial scale people's minds would be blown at how many people we reach but it's it's through these organizations working on issues that people really care about um so the scale's
1: pretty big that's incredible okay so founded in 2014 as it stands this is i think 21 people is the biggest tree shakes ever been in terms of headcount. And I'm assuming that you're profitable, you're generating significant revenue and the business is sustainable as a going concern, right?
0: Yeah, it's I mean, it's profitable. It's it, it, we we don't run on huge margins. We run in about a 14 percent margin. So it's not making buckets of cash, but I've optimized it for sustainability and steady growth. So, yeah. And, and the clients are a huge mix, as I said, you know, between institutions and individuals, and we we optimize profitability across and like just to make sure that every client needs to be profitable but they're profitable to varying degrees okay
1: and that's great yeah i've uh, i mean we're going on a little bit of a tangent but i've been playing around <laughs> with this idea of that that concept of when someone gets wealthy do they have fuck you money or do they just have enough money i'm yeah. kind of <laughs> playing around with this idea of should companies be aspiring for FU margins or just sustainable margins? And is that FU margin, the thing that gets us into capitalistic concern versus having sustainable margins that help us grow a consistent and good business that doesn't Mm -hmm. require destroying everything to be profitable. And I like that you've got, you've very consciously chosen a 14% margin. It's not a mistake that you've done that. I like that.
0: It's. I mean, we, when we have these breakthroughs, Nick, I mean, this is really important because it's one of the things that I've learned through the huge ups and downs. It, it, margin is a choice. We sometimes make a lot more margin, but what we do is we reinvest it to get back to our 14%, whether that's, you know, we can afford to give people raises or invest in some R&D to improve ourselves. But if I'm rapaciously overdrawing on the business, I'm probably imperiling it at some point.
1: And I call that catastrophic growth. And yeah. we, don't, we don't acknowledge that there is growth that is catastrophic. There is growth that is damaging, whether it's to you, your company, the yeah. earth, your staff, whoever, whether it's mental health or physical or whatever. I firmly believe that catastrophic growth is a real thing. Growth for the sake of growth isn't sensible. Yeah, yeah. Hey folks, Nick here, and I'm interrupting this fascinating conversation. And I know that that can be irritating, but I wanted to ask you to do me a small favor that will help me in a huge way Please, right now, stop and go and subscribe to It's Not Over wherever you are listening, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, or YouTube. Then leave a rating and review and turn on notifications. Every subscriber and every rating helps me keep this podcast trucking along. Now, back to the knowledge bombs. Okay, so now, T, T up. Tree Shake is where, when is this, what is happening? Break it down for me.
0: Okay, so 2014, I started Tree Shake as a side hustle. You mentioned Lewis Pugh. I, I was I was doing really well. I mean, I think I I, I was a digital marketing consultant dude. I'd had a joint venture with Ogilvy uh, to run their global digital marketing academy. I was traveling all over the place. There was no shortage of corporate work. I consulted at a top level, like on the ground in 25 countries. And Lewis Pugh got in touch and he asked if I would help him work on this plan to protect the oceans using like all the comm strategy, PR, social, and all of that. And it was a non-commercial value exchange where Lewis kind of mentored me and coached me. Uh, he's, he's he's a renowned athlete and helped me, you know, get in shape, lose weight, keep my focus. And just, I found him a very inspiring individual. And so we exchanged on those terms. Um... I started Tree Shake to be more intentional about what I was doing. I think on the corporate level, we were selling lots of beer and washing powder and all of the usual products. And I thought there's probably a space to do, to use everything that we've learned about uh, influence at scale and apply it to big causes. But TreeShake wasn't really making money in 2014. And I, I just had it as a side hustle, hoping that it would take off. And we started achieving results. So with Lewis, we we started getting vast tracts of the ocean protected. I did a, a project called Internet for All with the World Economic Forum that you know, raised a ton of money to help people get internet connected. And in 2017, I decided to really step it up. And I went and I booked myself for a two-week course at Harvard on public policy and global leadership um, to start kind of really expanding my thinking and deepening my understanding of it. And this was the seed of my destruction when I came back because it made me ridiculously ambitious. So I got back and I just said, no more side project. I'm going all in on impact marketing. And I even said to my team, like I used this metaphor of Shackleton, who I don't know if he took his boat, the Endurance, to Antarctica, and he got his team through the harshest conditions. As a side project, 2014 to 2017, I hadn't really sold much. I was basically just pouring money into tree Shake. You saw our officers, super fancy officers. I had a small team, but not, it wasn't making money. I just said to the team when I got back, we're gonna go all in. I'm saying no to everything else. Like all of the commercial work that was subsidizing Tree Shake. it's like, this is what we're gonna do. And I was like, we've got, at, at that point, there were five people, five very focused people and me. We're gonna focus on impact marketing. We're going to turn the ship around and as hard as it is, we're gonna do it. And whew, that didn't happen. <laughs> so within th- within three months, I'd retrenched everyone, Well, everyone except for three people were to me and two others. So there were two people left, I had to do my first round of retrenchments uh, in the business. Super painful. And I would wiped out the savings that I, that I had in the business and I'd gone into overdraft and maxed the overdraft. And that was emotionally painful. <laughs> so that was the start of it. And it basically took me three years to dig myself out of that hole. Uh, I was just getting back on my feet in 2020 uh, when COVID struck. And that was that was a second year death experience. Oh,
1: I got some questions. Okay, so so the Harvard course that's interesting to me. Was it in in actual Harvard you went? You sat with other people, and that what was the thing that made you go, fuck everything else? Let's do this. Like what from that course sparked it for you?
0: Harvard was really interesting because that you've got world-class achievers teaching you and the people that are there are all super ambitious and it's i didn't find the quality of the lecture of the lectures themselves particularly good or the teaching you sit in a lecture hall and they ask you questions most of the time they aren't even really teaching it's just dialogue Hmm. and the but the one thing that's different is that they really believe in you like they believe that if you're there you're going to do something significant and that makes a huge difference. And that probably was my most important takeout from it. Emotionally, people really believing that you can do something with your life. By the way, that I've taken as a guiding principle in my life. I think people rise to the level
1: of your expectations of them. Just to pause on that for a yeah. second. Did you not have that level of belief in yourself prior to going to that course?
0: Not, I mean, I think that... Entrepreneurs are always secretly very arrogant. Like, you, you believe that you are a titan on some level, otherwise you wouldn't, you wouldn't get going. And reality doesn't always meet up to that, uh, to that inner arrogance. And by the way, I don't think that's a good thing. I mean, I've tried my utmost to relieve myself of that. because it's a bit of a burden so yes I did but I think that there's a big difference between arrogance and confidence and by the way a lot of people in my life when I tell them that I thought I was arrogant they argue with me and they tell me that I'm that they think I'm humble and whatnot and I'm like well I'm putting on a good act but believe me deep down there's like this uh, you know there's a a bit of like I'm gonna do it energy I, I don't think that there was that deep confidence I think I was hedging and that and and being in that context and I'd I'd gone to Davos a few months before. I'd been invited to the UN General Assembly and I just, I was meeting and interacting with true titans. And when they asked me what I did, I could say that I, I, I teach digital marketing and I run digital, uh, like a digital, like essentially I do digital transformation and I've got the side hustle that does campaigns for change. And that, it was honestly a little bit embarrassing. And that was, and that was, so I came back humbled in that way and I was like, you know what? Mm-hmm. I'm I'm going to commit. And that's what it was. It kind of it was a little bit of embarrassment and a little bit I can do better and a little bit like I've had all of all of this ridiculous opportunity and I've got a phenomenal network. And what am I using it for? Am I using it to enrich myself and make my life more comfortable am I, or am I using it to make a legacy and do something that's more enduring than my ego?
1: Yeah, so it was kind of a a worldview shift more than it was a business shift, right? Your worldview just like got flipped on its head and you were like, I got to do something bigger and my business needs to inform that.
0: Exactly. Well, the worldview shift had been happening. I mean, one of the things that it was a commitment shift. I mean, one of the things that Ogilvy gifted me was a model of advertising that was called the Big Ideal. Uh, and the Big Ideal basically said that purpose-oriented brands outperform those that don't have. The, the, the original Ogilvy case study that was taught to us was Dove's Real Beauty campaign. And they just said, like, you can sell soap. But if you sell soap with a healing message for for women that communicates body positivity, there's going to be far better associations. And to the extent that the communications team can be authentic about communicating that message and genuinely soothe people, help them feel better about themselves. They're going to use the brand as a talisman or an icon. And I believed that. And I was kind of like a, a high priest of brand purpose, but also fighting against the rising tide of greenwashing, bluewashing, washing, to kind of go at what point is it destructive to communicate that if you're not actually doing the real work behind the scenes. And so that, that shift was happening. But I guess that for me, I felt I, I was increasingly feeling like I wasn't doing enough to
1: live that message with integrity myself and kind of go all in for it okay and on the practical side of the business how many people were you employing at the time of your return from harvard
0: there was yeah it was me and me and five people and probably a
1: few freelance teachers and that kind of thing okay and then when you get back and you've got this I know that feeling where you feel like the world has shifted nobody else can see it and you have to communicate this shift to the world um, immediately with your team, what did you do? What was the first thing when you had that first meeting like what did you sit and say to your team Everything is different now
0: Yeah it was a, it was a rocky time I mean I firstly we were we were running a campaign not, not profitably so the team were busy. And it was an international campaign, so people were running around, but I mean, we, as I said, uh, I was subsidizing Tree Shake's campaign work with my teaching and consulting and basically just pouring the excess from that uh, into subsidizing the campaigning teams. And so I just said to them, I'm cutting off the subsidies and instead of money, I'm going to give you time. And I'm going to stop earning money elsewhere and I'm just going to go all in. And so for all intents and purposes, it was a total win. Everyone was like, yes, Dave, bring it on, you know. And um, so I suppose I moved from, you know, being a funder and a part-time worker to kind of being all in with this thing. And, yeah, it was cool. I mean, everyone was amped. I did say, I, I realized how perilous it was. I mean, I said, I said to them, I did, I did anticipate it by telling them the story of Shackleton and Endurance. <laughs> and I said, things might get a bit hairy. But i'm going to make sure that we all come out of it on the other side alive at least and my financial manager was who's worked with me for like 15 plus years in the business was like okay dude let's see what you got here but it it was scary
1: how did it go from everything is amazing and i'm diving head in to okay i've got to retrench people like what was if you had to pinpoint it what was the thing that you didn't get right in that three months
0: well, just sales. I didn't know how to sell this kind of course. And we didn't have the credibility. Yeah. And, and the run rate. I mean, I think that our overheads were too high. And it's not expensive. I mean, I think that the run rate was about 150000 a month. But, you know, I think I had like, yeah, I didn't have much savings in the business. So like month one money wiped month two more money wiped month three overdraft month four overdraft and credit card it's it's that kind of thing and if you haven't if you're not making the sales commensurate to it and that was the tough thing to crack because i could have commercial credibility but i didn't have impact world credibility and they they were inherently distrusting i think of a a profit-making organization
1: coming into this space And I suppose anybody new coming into the space, especially boisterous, young, new, I've got to change the world. And they're like, yeah, we've heard this before, buddy. We've been there. We've been there.
0: Exactly. That's it.
1: Okay. And so the sales weren't there. The team is working on campaigns that you had been previously funding. And then you and your financial manager, I imagine, started having a conversation about the overdrafts and should you get another one? And how quickly before you realized that you had to start retrenching people? like three months and then that first conversation is what i'm wondering about
0: it was quick i mean thank goodness for my financial manager because she's like the eternal pessimist and i'm the eternal optimist and um she was telling me after month one you better pull finger buddy like get some sales and i and i and i did share with the team that things are getting a little bit hairy but you know like it's not their business and it's not their money and they, they pulled out some work that to this day is legendary and that I've benefited from. Like we were able to build on a lot of the legacy, even of the staff that left. And so it was very quick. And I mean, I think that after month two, I started looking for jobs for everyone. And I made sure that wow. everyone who left walked into something that paid at least as well as what I was giving them. And I kept the doors open and I've ended up working with all of the people that were there again. So... Hmm. Yeah, it was quick, man. You you know what it is. I mean, the burn rate of a business, if you aren't aware after one or two months when you're operating at a small scale of where your money's going to,
1: you maybe you don't <laughs> you don't
0: deserve to grow just yet.
1: I think it's an important observation. It's the advice that I give to every single uh, entrepreneur that I coach is what's your cash flow? Oh, you don't know what cash flow is, your business is doomed. Like yeah. if you literally have never understood the fundamental basic principle of cash flow you're already yeah. in trouble and I think it's important that we stop and just talk about burn rate for those yeah. of you listening who don't know what that is it's if if you're burning money like literally put it in a pile and burn it and um, the equation is how much money are you earning versus how much money are you spending and if you're spending more than you're earning that difference is your burn rate and the burn rate is I've got a million rand in the bank or a million dollars in the bank and I'm burning a million dollars a month, that means your burn rate is zero. You are, you're dead. You have no more money in the bank. So it's an important thing to understand that burn rates matter. And one of the ways to solve a dying business's problem is to cut the burn rates or increase sales. So spend less money or earn more money. And I suppose that's the equation you started doing in your head, right? We got to spend less money or earn more money.
0: The the first and most important enduring lesson that I got from that is Mm -hmm. uh, is simplify as much as possible. Uh, Lewis actually said to me at the time, he said, you've got to be, he has a little Jack Russell dog, and he said, you've got to be like a Jack Russell and cost Duarte. And I was like, okay, what you like every expense, every unnecessary piece of software. I didn't give up the fancy office, which was a mistake in retrospect. But yeah, at hundred percent, Nick, and and I keep it as simple as possible. You've got to spend less than you earn. That's the basics of business.
1: There is a lot of ego attached to running a, a small to medium-sized business. That I, and I hate the phrase headcount. Like yeah. we we say that we've got a big headcount because that's a show of how good our business is. But in my head, yeah. when I hear somebody. say, say that they've got 300 headcount. I'm like, oh my God, that is so painful. I can't imagine employing 300 people. So I'm all for this simplifying idea. And if you can do, I mean, Twitter is a great example right now, employing 8,000 people. What on earth are 8,000 people doing at that company? Are you kidding me? That's like a small town. It's ridiculous. So diving a little bit more deeply into this period of three months, which I think is an important one. I'm interested in what you were doing day to day as the person who's now come back, put the stake in the ground and said, we're going to change the world. And then a month in your financial managers, like you're fucked. What do you do every day?
0: Nick, I, I was just writing proposals. I was just doing outreach, I was writing proposals and initially for like having meetings, writing proposals, and also out there on social media, maintaining my brand and reputation because I think that a brand is a form of asset. This is This is a major lesson. If you don't have a brand, good luck getting out of a hole because your brand is what will carry you through as surely as savings in the bank. So I was there acting cool in public, you know, carrying on putting out social media carrying on having the meetings and then when I got back I I extended my hours so that's the first thing Uh, probably a mistake I mean I extended my hours uh to like I don't know I was working like 12 to 15 hour days i started working uh, a little bit on weekends which i don't usually like to do you know and i was wearing my energy thin not the best which i think phrase one's temper probably helps you make more panic decisions so that's what i did and for the first i think probably two months i was selling tree shake work campaigns for change month three i i was like screw that i'm selling Talks, workshops, and consulting <laughs> again. So I panicked and I went back to the old business model and I let the staff know I'm so sorry. Like I just, I, I could have, I could have left them hanging until the last minute and said, mm. um, you know, we're gonna be fine, we're gonna get through it. But I thought this is their livelihoods. It's respectful for me to, at the same time as I'm making a backup plan, let them know what's going on, help them get more more jobs, and I gave them retrenchments and so on. But I started selling on the old model after month two
1: survival a little bit of a blow blow to your ego i suppose and i I think the first (laughs) yeah the the interesting one that i want to talk about first up is that first conversation with your team like what did you literally in that conversation you called them all into a boardroom and you said what and what was their reaction
0: yeah nick i i mean i i think that this is the thing i think that i felt like I felt like when I announced the initial plan that I felt like a conquering hero and you feel like you're the brave leader out at the front. And then when that starts happening, it's it's deeply humbling. And you've got to admit that you aren't as in control as you said that you were or thought that you were. And I just went through it in real time. I try and be as open and honest as I can. You use the word vulnerability in your podcast. I, to the extent that I'm honest with myself, I try and share that with others. So it wasn't like I was hiding anything. And I think that I just shared my humiliation with them. And I asked for help. And I just said, you know, I'm, I'm alone. And I think that, that one of my big takeouts from there is just understanding that sharing that journey sharing your struggles it can be relieving for the entrepreneur but it also can panic the team in a bad way and that wasn't necessarily good because the behavior that emerged from that even though i did take care of them there was some deeply unethical behavior on my staff's part where they started moonlighting where they took clients on themselves it was just every person was in it for themselves not everyone but it was it was tough seeing that and Mm. people coming after me for money preemptively because they're worried that i wouldn't pay them i just i think that part of the scary thing about being an entrepreneur is that you own your own mistakes and one of the benefits of being an employee is that you have got a bit of a buffer and it is supposed to be a safe space and i guess i've learned that that's also my responsibility is to provide stability and to give foresight but i don't know if i would have been as transparent as early in
1: future i think yeah yeah, that was actually going to ask you if you would have done it differently if you had to do it again in that specific yeah. scenario, not necessarily Look, now everyone, because you've learned.
0: Yeah, everyone came out fine. So I don't know, Nick. I mean, literally, I mean, I I didn't think about, I chose not to think too much about what I was going to say before I came on this podcast. So I'm also using you for therapy. I think honestly, mm-hmm. the best part of it was the worst part of it. The best part of it mm-hmm. is that my ego took a knock and that's also the best part of
1: it. Because we've known each other for so long, I feel comfortable speaking out of turn here. But even... Going to a Harvard course to realign your thinking comes from a place of ego because you're a smart guy. You had a network. You you know what you wanted to do, but part of you needed this Harvard thing to make you come back and go. I'm now from Harvard. I've got a plan, and actually, that kind of screwed you over.
0: I've got a theory of education. I mean, education is different from learning. And when you go and you get a formal qualification or degree, what what you find is that you're just get, you're getting badge value. And that's what people are paying for. And that and that's made me cynical because I've spent a lot of time teaching in universities and courses and classes. And while there is authentic learning that happens, in certain degrees, people are just there to get through and they don't care about the learning. They care about the stamp at the end. And Part of Harvard was just getting that stamp so that then I could have the credibility to go and meet with change leaders and go, I can hold my own in this space. I know what I'm talking about. I know what policy change is, I know what global leadership is about. So it was badge value totally. But also okay. I did hope to learn from the best.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm curious about your perspective now on this idea of going all in because it feels like you're saying that going all in was the problem but the advice that most people get when they're starting a business is don't hedge you can't build seven businesses at the same time and it feels like you're saying i shouldn't have done that i should have done it a different way do you think you should have done it a different way and if so how
0: well all right
1: so my my near-death experience
0: didn't end with those three months and i mean this is this is my learning so let's roll yeah when you make that yeah when you make that decision the time has to be right so it was too early for me to stop hedging you and I are both fans of side projects and side hustles it should have remained a side hustle a little bit longer it was actually starting to earn money it just wasn't profitable I'd started charging clients a bit of money and all of those clients that we had then and actually most of them have remained clients even to this day and they've grown a little bit I was just I was running it I just wasn't running it profitably and I was cross subsidizing it with the with the very profitable Mm. consulting work commercial consulting and corporate consulting work that I was doing so I was it was just too early fast forward three years and with COVID it had been running as a side project it was washing its face at last but I was still doing the corporate consulting and teaching and so I had these two organizations and Tree Shake was then I think start of 2020 it hadn't i don't think it hadn't grown again i hadn't rehired people there were three people um sorry, there were four people in the business i'd rehired one extra person four people at the start of 2020 start of lockdown lockdown came all of my teaching work dried up because it was in person and it was like i had six months lined up and suddenly this little business needed to stand on its own and it was washing its face it had a bit of reputation and profile 2020, I went all in then and it took off. And it couldn't have taken off if I didn't focus on it 100% and drop the teaching, drop the corporate consulting and go all in. So I my yeah. advice to people is, is keep it as a side project as long as it takes to learn confidently what this business needs to be. It's the same thing also I tell youngsters, stay at home and live with your parents if possible, as long as possible. I like keep your costs low. Keeping it yeah. as a side project reduces your overhead because you are an overhead, your salary is an overhead.
1: There's so, so, so much to unpack there. The, the first thing is how many entrepreneurs pitch me their businesses and call themselves profitable but aren't paying themselves a salary. If you cannot pay yourself a salary, you are not a profitable business. That's just, it's just not a real thing. Like salaries are an expense that need to be accounted for. So that's the first thing. Second thing is I buy this idea that you need to do whatever it takes for as long as possible to prove that your business is there, has traction, is real. And the example that comes to mind is Phil Knight in Shoe Dog. If you yep. haven't read it, I'm, I mean, I'm sure you have, but if my listeners haven't read it, go and read this book. It, I, I cried through it. I was excited through it. It was a brilliant read. But one of the main takeaways I got from that book is he worked full-time as an accountant for eight years before deciding to move to Nike full-time. He ran Nike in the evenings, on weekends, mm-hmm. on holidays, while he was still doing a full job for eight years. And the question that I ask most people when I tell the story is, what have you done for eight years? never mind run a side project. What single thing have you done for eight years in a row? Think of one thing. To be frank, I can't. My longest term business was a seven-year entity. I haven't Mm. run a business for longer than seven years. So running a side project for eight years is quite a commitment. Then the near-death experience of 2020 for you was your consulting and teaching disappearing, and then your entire focus having to shift to tree shake. And What did you do when, because I mean, I had the same experience with my speaking. I had four months of talks booked and then all cancelled. And I just remember flat out panic, sitting in a tiny one bedroom apartment with my partner going, what are we going to do? So what was it like for you when you realized this? Sheesh, Nick,
0: it was a total scramble. It was hell, to be honest. 2020 was hell it was hellish growth it was growth from day one but it was hell tree shake was going along and i had uh, uh, so bit of luck also we were consulting we were consulting with an organization that started working with the solidarity fund which funded the initial covid communications and awareness wear masks wash your hands etc (laughs) etc And they and they they asked me to write a script for a radio show that could be translated into different languages and a radio like sorry not a script like a format for a radio show and that would be transformational and purposeful and whatnot and I came up with a way of you know bringing in community voices featuring doctors and that kind of thing and and bringing in celebrities and uh, the show was called Sikaba COVID nineteen which means we kick it together. And that did really well. It expanded into every national language, 40 radio uh, stations. And then they came back and they said, can you turn this into a mass awareness generating event? And this was, I was charging subsidized consulting fees. And for the first time, I said to the client, I said, I'm so sorry, I can't subsidize this. Like, I have to charge you commercial rates. And they said, sure. And I put together a spreadsheet and I looked at my input costs and I needed to hire a bunch of freelancers to deliver it. And I put on a margin and I submitted it to them. And I said, I'm so sorry. I said, this is how much it's going to cost. And they're a nonprofit. And I thought nonprofits don't have money. And she said, oh, that's fine. That's what I was expecting. And I was like, what are you kidding? Like, that's enough for me to live on. Like, I can do that. (laughs) And so we did it and we involved Kaiser Chiefs and the, the SAFA and like the Banyana Banyana and it took off uh, Robert Marawa. If you're a soccer fan, he got involved and it, we trended, we got it going. And so it was such a great start and that made a big splash. And, we just, and I, I just pitched one after another and that sounds fun, but let me tell you about what's not fun. I know that sales is how you dig yourself out of a hole. And so I, I did what I did in... 2017 is I just started I I sold in 2017 to get out of the hole in 2020 I sold to get out of the hole the difference is that every single campaign that I pitched came through and suddenly uh, I had to I had to deliver on all of these things and so I just started panic hiring just to like get it and I put it all in at commercial rates and flip we we delivered exceptionally on everything and like I went from like bottom of the overdraft again. It took like I wiped it out again, 2019, without having to retrench anyway, It suddenly turned around, and within a few months, I had like a million bucks in the bank, and it was like, what the hell is going on? And then we could stabilise, and then we could start hiring properly, onboarding people, training people. Um, I I started saying no to work, reinvested the bucks, and that laid the foundation. But it was. Nine months of the worst hell of work that I've ever experienced in my life. Sixteen-hour days, um, six day a week. I always take a, I always take a rest day, no matter what. But uh, just to give my brain a break, like dopamine fasting, technology shabbat, whatever you call it. But. Even that wasn't enough. And it it was so weird, Nick, I was so burnt out. And this is really weird. It was like my unconscious mind was telling me that I'm burnt out because I kept on physically burning myself. I was like, by the end of the year, not only emotionally exhausted, I had burn marks all over my body. It was so weird. Yeah, it was crazy. It was
1: freaking crazy. And yeah, and that's how he turned it around then. What was the change from 2017 to 2020 in your approach to sales in closing? Because you're basically selling the same thing. You, yeah. you, you're you now in a much more intense place where if you don't do this, not only can you not default to your old consulting, but your business will shut down and you will have nothing. So the pressure is... Yeah. 10x what it used to be so what was the difference yeah. if you could pinpoint it
0: the difference was that i i had the process that we were selling i was able to communicate much more coherently what we do and why it makes a difference so in 2017 i knew what we did made a difference in 2020 i knew why it made a difference and i worked for three years on distilling that into a concise way of talking it through and so i developed almost like a templated project approach which also uh, converted into a templated sales approach because if you ask me now i can tell you and this is the benefit of being a teacher i can tell you step by step how we run a campaign for change and why that's different We've got all these frameworks, story, people, action is how we run projects, how we build communities, bonfires, wildfires, fireworks, how we run ads, feel no do. Everything is broken down and any question you ask me, I can confidently answer you. And we and um, I can show you the processes that we've used to train our teams, the technology that we've built. In other words, I went legit. <laughs> so you know, in twenty seventeen, it was the promise, and over those years of side hustling, I actually built infrastructure around that that promise. And that's the full night thing. It takes time, and I I really believe, and I I hope that I'm at the start of this journey, and we carry on, and we're going to carry on doing it. One other thing, just by the way, in twenty seventeen. I put out all of these feelers for corporate work when we were like at the bottom of the overdraft and then it was our 10-year anniversary a my partner. And then we, in the midst of financial like devastation, we went and we took our 10-year anniversary, a blissful road trip. And I just thought, goodness, if I, if one of these sales doesn't come through while we're on this 10-year anniversary, I am really screwed. Like I'm going to have to like, Draw from the bond or something. And on the last day of our anniversary, a deal came through that was about 700,000 Rand, which was exactly the amount I needed to dig us out of the hole. And I, in 2017, also went through hell. I delivered on that deal myself. I should have hired like five, six other teachers. I taught and I delivered until my throat was raw like I had no voice at the end of it and and that determination to never say die ultimately is what (laughs) will get you through I'm just not doing it ever again on adrenaline I'm sorry like yeah getting too old I mean but yeah one
1: one of my favorite essays written by uh, an investor named Paul Graham is called how not to die and in it all he says is you succeed when you're the only one standing That's the game. Yeah, And the interesting thing that you highlight for me is this idea, it's a different take on the overnight success that Tree Shake is a now five year success that took five years to screw up to learn how to tell the right story how to engage people. And this is why overnight successes are bullshit, because you need the time to construct the narrative. And really all you're telling me is that you got the story right for yourself. You knew how to tell the stories for other people, for their brands, Mm -hmm. for their campaigns. You hadn't actually turned your skills on your own business in the same way that a cobbler has bad shoes. And then when you did do that, everything changed. And the number of times that I've questioned why I got a journalism degree when I wanted to start in business, Uh, now it proves relevant, right? Journalists know how to tell stories and leaders know how to tell stories. That link oh, is not lost on me. Yeah. Sales is about storytelling. Yeah. It's not yeah. about, I mean, look, it is about numbers. I'm a firm believer that statistics matter in sales. You make 50 calls, you close five of them, cool. But if you're telling the wrong story to the wrong person at the wrong time, it's mm. all dead. Yeah, 100%. <laughs>
0: Nick, storytelling was actually the other thing that that brought it together for me because i didn't have have a journalism degree teaching is storytelling but understanding fundamentally that that projects are stories and we're living in a narrative economy where the best story wins and that's and that's literal the the other thing is that that i've had to learn and this is what my coach taught me is he said there's the hyper growth isn't the only form of growth there's slow growth you can get better with no growth. There's, uh, there's degrowth where you can like have a lot of people to construct an edifice and then you deconstruct it to sustain it. There's many forms of growth and uh, for me, organic growth is my way. It's the slow hunch. What is the business suggesting to me? And it's like, it's like a child. You can't scream at a child to grow up faster. The child grows up at the rate that the child grows up. You can't make a three-year-old child suddenly act like a, a 18-year-old child. And I like the idea of thinking about it like a tree. There's you have two kinds of business builders architects and gardeners and i'm very much a gardener i nurture i see what the project suggests and it gets better and better over time and sometimes it means i pull out weeds give a little bit of extra sunshine and we have seasons to it and operating with a sense of patience is not what we hear a lot of in a world that celebrates hypergrowth.
1: and the difficult thing i love your analogy of the child but the added dimension for me is the business also has other businesses, other media organizations showing you and telling you that you're not growing hard enough, you're not growing yeah. fast enough, you're not big enough, you don't have enough people, you're not profit enough, you're not being a unicorn, when actually your points about yeah. there being different types of growth is so salient to the way that I see the world too, that we were talking uh, off air about catastrophic growth. We don't yeah. realize often enough in businesses that catastrophic growth is a real thing. 100% your year on your growth mm-hmm. is a problem if you don't know how to hire, if you don't know how to scale, yeah. if you don't know how to cope yeah with that growth and that actually leads me into a question about this bursting phase of yours most people i know struggle to hire one person effectively you said to me yeah. you were panic hiring because you'd closed too many sales how did you yeah. find good people that quickly
0: uh, that's what i said to my coach my coach helped me work this through because i said to him i just got extraordinarily lucky i it was kind of like this is how i hired someone would mail me and i would and i <laughs> it would literally be like, ah, the universe has suggested you. <laughs> Do you want a job? So It was literally like, I don't know. There, there was probably, it wasn't as simple as that. That's how it felt to me because I had to hire a team so quickly. And my, and my coach, Col Gosner, who's exceptional, said to me, he said, could it be that you've refined your, your guts, that you've refined your intuition to the point where you can make good decisions that you can't explain? And he showed me also... That there are businesses, There's, there's a business that he showed me in the US that's grown by anyone that applies for a job gets the job. If they can afford, they'll pay you a lot. If they can't afford you're not gonna get paid, but they're not gonna say no, they'll find work for you. That's and crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. I think now I have, I, I am a little bit more <laughs> circumspect with hiring because there's more at stake. Like anyone that listened to Rob Stokes's episode on your show about his financial manager who, who duped them will tell you you've got to be aware and you've got to put in place those those, ba- those boundaries. And I think I had a season of hyper growth and I was and I I'm gonna say yes, maybe it was gut feel I've refined it. I also think that I was very very lucky and i've got such good people elaine my partner also came on board and she's exceptional at nurturing community and i think that the other thing is i think that the culture that we work in can bring out the best or the worst in us and we've got thanks to thanks to what elaine brought into the business an exceptionally healthy and nurturing culture that that grows and develops people and i think that you can come in to that culture and realize your potential whereas in any other, I, I mean i first heard the story about designers at apple when they were really flying high that um, a designer at apple has like 10x the capability in like a no-name brand company just because they're in a context that like harvard believes in them and believes in their potential and works
1: with their potential i'm interested um, in this growth that you experienced and how you pulled yourself back from that growth to then start thinking okay, wait, I don't want massive margins and I don't want to be a 100-person company. Actually, I want 14% margin and I want to grow at my rates. Was it a very conscious thing? You sat down with your partner and went, this is what I want, or did it just evolve like that? I'm not against a hundred person company and I'm not against making a lot of money. I'm just being,
0: I'm just trying to be prudent because I don't want to put myself through that, that hell again. And I know that our kind of business does, I, I do, I do need to grow because I need to challenge people. And I believe in our mission. We're very mission oriented. We're tackling a problem that I believe is very real in the world. People need a sense of community and transcendence to work on things that are bigger than themselves to get out of the hyper individualism and materialism towards something that is bigger uh, than themselves. And mm. I believe in that mission. Everyone that works with me believes in that mission and we believe in the things that we're working on. So that demands growth, but not at the expense of our integrity because, um, what are, these are the things that have, that have been the boundaries that have kept me in place. I don't, I don't work overtime and I don't demand overtime of my team. I don't work weekends. I don't demand weekends from my team. If I have to work Ever. weekends or my team has to work weekends, it sometimes happens. Then we will take an equivalent time off to rest and recover. So that's, it's just working at nature's pace and that. That naturally constrains me to the level of growth that I have. If I exceed that, also, I think that I might look, I also pricing is also there's a whole thing about pricing that I'm still learning and I really am still on the journey. But I also believe that in good faith, if I'm constantly giving my clients better and better value, they trust us more and they're more likely to stick around. And I, I want to have a lot of long-term clients that really trust us. And I also have this vision of myself as an old man surrounded by friends. And those friends aren't just my staff. They're also everyone that I've worked with over the years. And so I'm trying to build relationships. And you don't build relationships by taking more than you due, And that's what I'm building towards.
1: Wow, I, I do really appreciate and love how conscious and aware you are of the decisions you're making and why you're making them. It's more proactive than reactive, which I think is so important. And usually I say to people in the first few years, don't worry, just do whatever it takes. But actually it is worth being conscious. It's worth being aware of why you're doing what you're doing and doing it with intent rather than mm-hmm. only being reactionary. Mm-hmm. So we're getting we're getting close to the end of this Dave. So I wanna ask you, firstly, I know that you're very conscious about mental health. So in these these two near-death business experiences what was it like for you with your mental health how did you kind of stabilize to get back onto the horse
0: nick the, the first one was just terrible for my sleep and my health and i put on and i put on like 12 kilograms because i stress eat so not not much that i could share from that like i mean it just it, it wasn't great and okay. there's the And the second one, this this more recent one in 2020, I developed a meditation practice where I sit in silence at least once a day, preferably twice a day for 20 minutes, and I just let go. And that practice of letting go allows me to have boundaries. It's incredibly difficult to sit in complete silence if your head is running constantly. And so that just forms a good buffer for myself that lets me have sleep. I've got a friend, John McKinroy, now known as Bodie, and he changed his whole life, left his very successful work career, corporate career, athletic career around a particular physical challenge that he had. And he wrote a book about it called Butterfly Man, about his transformation, just about how fundamental the physical experience of life is. And for me, my Butterfly Man issue was insomnia, which is something that I've struggled with since high school. And in order to combat my insomnia, I've had to reconstruct a whole way of living, which includes my meditation practices, which includes uh, gentle and frequent exercise at a particular time, uh, which includes wow. having my digital detox, texture about dopamine fast at least one day a week. Yeah, so th- the key word that you said is intentionality. And I'm doing what I can to n- nurture... Um, calm and peace with all of the ups and downs to try and keep that perspective and
1: it's that's where I am and that's (laughs) kind of keeps me sane yeah yeah amazing and then finally what lesson did you learn from these near-death business experiences that you take with you into your businesses today
0: what comes to me is what was actually traumatizing about the businesses wasn't the failure in itself because when i when i talk about it it always it, it feels like white people problems so to speak i like i look at this spreadsheet and it's like dude like this isn't real problems and i'm like why did it feel so traumatic and it's because the business was so dear to me it was my whole identity was wrapped up in it and that mm. loss of identity it was so traumatizing and I think that that through all of this, I've learned the value of boundaries, like to try and not get too caught up in personally invested in whether my business is succeeding and failing or failing. And I think that that actually makes me a better decision maker because I can look more objectively at what I'm doing and kind of instead of saying this is me and it's me that you're insulting or not taking seriously or me that's experiencing a period of low growth or hyper growth, I'm just kind of going that's the business. This is me as a human. These are my needs. And so I guess it's, I hope, an increasingly wise sense of detachment from it all. That doesn't mean that I don't care or don't love what I'm doing and the
1: people that I work with. Yeah, it took me a couple of years with my psychologist to decouple my self-worth from my output. Yeah. And maybe
0: you've said it, man, like so many times, like in, in your podcast, like entrepreneurs, when they start out, do it for very mixed motives and it's usually quite egotistical especially when we start young yeah
1: Yeah, and then like you've said when you start losing money when you start losing sales when your team starts leaving you it's like Mm. a personal slight when actually Mm. it isn't you are more than the output that you produce and and on that bombshell please tell everybody where they can find you where they can find and follow you and tree shake and if they want to work with you what they should do
0: Excellent. So I'm Dave Duarte, wherever, like at Dave Duarte on Twitter, Instagram, uh, my website is daveduarte.coza. Treeshake, at Treeshake. The, the name comes from pulling on the branch of a tree, <laughs> making good trouble. So yeah, and it's treeshake.com, at Treeshake. And I wanted to say, Nick, I really appreciate you. I love the podcast. I listen regularly. It is such a good listen. And it's, it's not just therapy being on the show it's therapy (laughs) listening to the show and uh, i appreciate you man thanks for this
1: dave thank you so much for being with me and i'm really happy to say that for you and tree shake it's not over
0: yes